Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. This week, we depart a little bit from our normal uh, uh, format, where we interview somebody and then put it out and it lasts about an hour. Instead, we have a event we've recorded done with Paul Monson, a temple architect for the church, and with Arch Williams, the newly appointed manager of art for temples in the church. They visited us in the middle of our 50 years of LDS art exhibit currently on show in Salt Lake City at the historic First Emanuel Church on 4th East and 2nd South. Uh, you can learn more about that on our website, zineartsociety.org, or on Facebook forward slash zineartsociety. Uh, this, this interview goes a little longer than usual. It starts off with a lecture from Paul Monson discussing his philosophy behind art and how uh, he thinks about uh, the, the creation of temples from an architectural standpoint. And then Arch Williams stands up afterwards and talked a little bit about his new position, which is very new, and his philosophy and, and the future of art in temples under um, commissions that he is currently uh, seeking. We then spend 10 or 15 minutes taking questions from the audience, which was also very illuminating. It's longer. It's much longer than our normal podcast, but I think it's worth it. So, so hang in there and you'll, there are gems all along the way. Well, welcome to an evening at the uh, Zion Art Society here at, uh, you know, I'm going to say it, I'm going to call it the First Emanuel Church, the historic First Emanuel Church that was founded in 1911. It was built um, by a group of Baptists who came to, um, came to Salt Lake in order to reconvert the Mormons to Christianity. And that was their stated goal. And 30 years later, they sold it to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> And now we are here today hosting an exhibition celebrating 50 years of LDS art. So I'd like to, hope, I'd like to think that in the spirit of ecumenicalism, if that's the right word I'm looking for, I don't think it is. But let's go with it. It is? Okay, I'm a, I'm a descriptivist, not a prescriptivist when it comes to language. So whatever I say is what I mean. <laughs> but my name is, uh, is Micah Christensen, and I'm one of the co-founders of the Zion Art Society. This exhibition is... Uh, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, A Gospel Vision of the Arts, which he gave on September 12, 1967, and he laid out a bold vision for uh, the LDS Church having its own distinct visual culture, its own Michelangelo's, its own Shakespeare's, so it wasn't just visual, it was just arts in general. And a big part of that culture, I think we'd all agree, would be um, how art and architecture play a role, especially in the sacred temples of the church. And we are very lucky today to have two people who are at the inner circle of those decisions. They are at the heart of it. Paul Monson, church architect, and Arch Williams. And your, your uh, title is art manager for the temple, correct? Temple, yeah. So... Um, I'll just say a little bit about both of them. Uh, I, I consider them both friends. I've known, I've known Paul longer. He is, in addition to being an architect, the president of 
the Institute for Classical Art and Architecture for the chapter here in Utah. And um, he's, he's very active in the cause of, of promoting traditional architecture. Uh, he received his, his Master's of Architecture at Notre Dame University and his, uh, his undergraduate at Brigham Young University. I've got that right, right? And you also did a stint in Chicago at studying stained glass and its workings, yeah. right? So you're able to do stained glass. We're going to have to have a demonstration one of these days. Yeah. Just get the oven going and pour a bunch of hot glass out. It's that easy, right? No? Uh, I, I don't do that part of it. Just put it together. Oh, OK, OK. There's a division of labor. You've got to go sure. to Kokomo, Indiana if you want to pour the molten glass. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? We're going to have to have a separate talk about that. And um, Arch, you are, um, you recently moved from California where you worked as an interior designer for, um, for your own firm. You were a partner there, correct? And yes. you were doing um, high income uh, uh, residences and also commercial spaces all over the country and the world. Uh, but, but you're originally from the, uh, the Intermountain West, right? Or you're from Idaho. Idaho, that's right, from Idaho. That doesn't quite count as the Intermountain West, does it? It's its own no, thing. It, it's there. Okay. And did your undergraduate at BYU as well? Yep. You've been in your position as the art manager for almost a year now. Almost a year. Right? Well, I look forward to hearing what both of you have to say. And um, are you going to leave time at the end for us to answer, ask some questions? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, welcome everyone. Thanks for coming. Those of you who don't have seats, I'm going to bring more to you. And uh, it's a packed house. If you don't see it, if you can't see it here, and if you're online, this will be archived, and you'll be able to uh, experience it uh, afterwards if you weren't able to make it. So you can share this with friends. And without without further ado, welcome. So I guess I'm up. Thank you. Uh, my name is Paul Monson. I'm calling this uh, Zion Must Increase in Beauty, Thoughts on Art and Architecture. These are entirely my thoughts. I do not represent the church uh, right now as I'm speaking, just myself. Um, so I'll talk about Zion and the temples kind of towards the end. Uh, but what I want to do is kind of set the table and talk about some general ideas and, uh, and topics. Some thoughts about art and architecture. No better? So a, f a friend said to me once that uh, an architect is nothing but a frustrated engineer. <laughs> and that's probably true for many. But in my case, it's a frustrated artist. I still have dreams of going back and studying art to do painting and sculpture. But right now, I'm happy doing architecture and getting to rub shoulders with many artists that I admire and wish I could be like. When I was in school, art education consisted of mostly intentional ignorance. I took all the art classes my high school offered and started down the path to being an art major in college. But my teachers had nothing to teach, really other than color theory, maybe, or put the eyes about in the middle of the face. Uh, what can you teach when every rule and convention has been broken, every taboo perverted, every dead-end style of self-expression taken to its dead end? So I was given what I felt were empty and pointless assignments and was frustrated. Most students were secretly copying 
other contemporary artists or rehashing ideas that were a few decades old, which for somehow was okay, but studying anything beyond that in the past was forbidden. If I had found a school like some artists here in Utah have started, maybe I would have stuck with it. But I just couldn't take it after a while. Everyone saying they loved the emperor's new clothes when clearly there were none. So I gave up transferring to the business school of all places from one extreme to the other. But my right brain was shriveling, so eventually I found a middle ground studying linguistics and literature. I wish the reading room at the Harold B. Lee Library were this beautiful. <laughs> After graduating from BYU, I made stained glass windows in Chicago and built houses for a couple of years, then decided to try another attempt at art, this time from the perspective of architecture. Philip Johnson said, architecture is the art of how to waste space. So I guess I studied how to waste space and enjoyed it so much I devoted my life to it. No, actually I don't believe uh, the charlatan Philip Johnson. Somehow I stumbled upon a school in Indiana that taught a classical and traditional approach to architecture. For me it was incredibly refreshing. It was also very humbling because rather than being told to just find myself and do whatever I wanted, I was expected to learn a rigorous language of design that had rules and principles and a history of masters like Christopher Wren, who I could hardly begin to rival. The modernist establishment considers Notre Dame School of Architecture backwards and nostalgic and useless but the education was exactly what I had hoped for, and I left with hope and ambition, ready to aim for eternity. In my life, one of the ways that I know that I'm on the right track is if I find questions that stay with me and keep generating really fascinating challenges and ideas. As I've studied the buildings of the past and then compared them with what we build today, and as I've practiced architecture myself, one of the big questions I come back to again and again is, what is the relationship between architecture and art? What should it be? What could it be? It isn't what it once was. Architects don't do what they used to do. Architects were a master builder in the past. The designer was there at the construction site directing the craftsmen on what to do sometimes getting into the details, sometimes letting the artisans do their own thing. You can look at early Mormon temples, for example, Kirtland, Nauvoo, and St. George. There aren't a lot of drawings to tell a general contractor how to build every detail. There are a few conceptual drawings to give the dimensions and the overall proportions, then the rest you work out on site with the artisans. So there's naturally a lot of collaboration there has to be. And everywhere you went, craftsmen did things a little bit differently based on their tradition and the materials available. So you get a rich variety of styles from place to place. That's why I think historians get it fundamentally wrong when they categorize architecture chronologically rather than geographically. Architecture to me is more about place than it is about time, but that's a discussion for another day. My point here is that the role of architects used to be much more hands-on. The Greek roots architekton literally means chief carpenter or chief builder. But today, things are very different. For many reasons, but most of them related to lawyers and insurance, an architect has a very different role today. 
he or she doesn't direct the construction work. In fact, they are legally forbidden to talk to any of the workers because if they, uh, they would be liable if anyone they talked to uh, messed up the schedule or got injured. So every detail of the building has to be worked out in drawings and specifications first before construction starts. Instead of a few simple drawings and then collaboration, today we create enormous volumes of sheets and sheets of drawings and instructions and then spend the next few years playing blame games with the owner and the builder. The contractor looks for any details you may have omitted and then requests more money saying, well, I didn't know you wanted, want me to do it that way. There is no perfect system, and I'm not trying to over-romanticize the past. It wasn't perfect either, but I am saying that the current system is basically broken. It's one of the big reasons buildings today look like this rather than that. It perpetuates mediocrity and discourages artisanship because now you have an architect, a jack of all trades, master of none, drawing details of everything these craftsmen are supposed to do. Artistry is replaced by technical specifications. To add to the problem, most architects are trained essentially like I was in art school, where you aren't allowed to learn from the past. There isn't much substance to what they're taught, mostly abstract thinking, exercises and self-expression because form should be generated from the inside and not from precedent. I was fortunate to have found Notre Dame, which is the only school really in the country with traditional and classical design embedded in the curriculum. There are other schools that don't completely forbid it or that offer a class here and there, but Notre Dame built their whole program around the, ra around the philosophy of the 19th century Beaux-Arts School in France. The teachings of both schools were rational, or in other words, based on a belief in absolute universal standards of beauty. Both emphasize hand drawing. We studied shade and shadow, perspective drawings, plaster casts, watercolor renderings, and figure drawing. Notre Dame wasn't a perfect school and neither was the École de Beaux-Arts, but there was an emphasis on collaboration between art and architecture that has continued to fascinate me. The nonprofit Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, or ICAA, is one, that, one way that I've tried to continue to explore these connections and bring in great teachers and lecturers to Utah to share this tradition with others. So I'd like to look at a few uh, ideas of this uh, connection between art and architecture and how they relate to temples. Well, I'll start with uh, non-LDS examples. The Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. is one of the premier examples of integrated art and architecture. Completed in 1897, the building is enhanced by the art of more than 40 sculptors and painters, including Kenyon Cox and Daniel Chester French. In many ways, a temple of the arts, the building itself is arguably one of the library's greatest treasures. There are over 100 murals and tile mosaics, rich sculpture in metal and stone, it's one of the most optimistic and opulently decorated buildings in America. And using this building as an example, I'd like to define a couple of terms. 
ornament and decoration. We use these almost interchangeably today, but they aren't the same and each historically had a precise role in architecture. Ornament is embellishment that is applied to architectural elements like moldings and column capitals. Decoration is pictorial imagery such as murals, a statue, or sculpted relief. The role of ornament could be described as the architecture of the near view. It articulates form following the rules of proportion and composition that govern the building as a whole. Today, after decades of absence from most architecture, ornament is often seen as something unnecessarily added to a form rather than something that completes it. An analogy of nature that describes a traditional approach to ornament would be the way that leaves sprout from the ends of branches which look bare in the winter without them. Ornament takes the form of geometric patterns, animal or plant forms, often with symbolic meanings. It was one of the first aspects of traditional design to be abandoned in the 20th century and is perhaps one of the most difficult to revive once it has been lost in our visual culture and architecture. Decoration has been called a gesture against loneliness. Historically, buildings were often populated with animals and figures. Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel is maybe the ultimate example. Renaissance masters like Michelangelo and Raphael understood both art and architecture and were able to coordinate and integrate the two in ways that are still celebrated and maybe unmatched today. Ornament and decoration, along with their companions, furnishings, lighting, hardware, doors, windows, and other architectural elements are where art and architecture meet. Art can be engaged with the building itself, as is the case with a mural or a column or ornamented molding, or it can be portable, movable, like a painting hung on the wall or a sofa in a furniture arrangement. There are peaks and valleys throughout history and across the globe of this integration of art and architecture. And I am not making the case that a building with more art is inherently superior to one without. Baroque cathedrals, French neoclassical buildings, especially those of the Belle Epoque, Gothic and the revivals of the Gothic in Europe and America, these are all examples of buildings with a great deal of art of ornament and decoration. But who can deny the beauty of a minimal Scandinavian farmhouse? Or the spare Japanese tea house, perfectly one with nature? Or the simple Puritan meeting house? Historically, LDS temples have incorporated a good deal of art. No two temples are exactly identical, and different architects have taken different approaches. In the pioneer era, we accomplished really remarkable things, given the limited resources and limitations of the day. 
And as the church came into the 20th century, you can see some of the finest examples of art and architecture coming together. Here's another quote from Philip Johnson. I don't know if I agree with this or not, but he said, architecture is art, nothing less. If you've never been to the Cardston Temple in Alberta, it's worth the trek. Uh, this temple, designed by the architecture firm Pope and Burton, is an early 20th century example of a Mormon temple that integrates art and architecture in truly remarkable ways. In my opinion, they do Frank Lloyd Wright better than Frank Lloyd Wright does himself. <laughs> Mosaics, art glass, sculpture, furniture, lighting, the integration of all of these is fantastic. A couple of decades later, even as modernism is beginning to take hold, we have examples like the Art Deco Moderne of the Idaho Falls Temple in the 1940s with these magnificent brushed nickel oxen of the baptistry font. Again, we see uh, murals uh, and this integration, even in an era of uh, limited budgets and uh, wartime constraints, uh, there was an effort to integrate art into the architecture of temples. If you've had an opportunity to walk around the exhibit, you'll see this drawing uh, by Arnold Freiberg showing a bas-relief that was a, a concept for the, to go on the side of the doors uh, entering the Los Angeles temple. Uh, the execution of this bas-relief was never carried out, uh, but who knows, maybe a donor will step forward and make it happen. Uh, so throughout the pioneer era, the early uh, 20th century, uh, we had many examples of artists working closely with church leadership and with the designers of the temples, uh, both on the exterior and the interior. Later in the 20th century, uh, there's a trend of temples having less ornament, less art, uh, and this could be for many different reasons, but certainly one of them is a focus on, uh, on efficiency, uh, reduced budgets, and an effort to spread temples quickly around the world. How does it work with temples today? Well, I wish I could say it worked perfectly, but there are many obstacles to perfect collaboration. One, human limitations. I am exhibit A. People are imperfect and coordinating art and architecture is complex and difficult. Uh, two, there's been a loss of cultural knowledge. Uh, architects are not trained the way they were in the past. Uh, we're taught an approach to architecture where ornament is minimal, if not explicitly forbidden. Budgets are limited. The church does not have unlimited resources, and there's always a balance between a more beautiful temple or more wells in Africa 
or more meeting houses or other humanitarian efforts. There's also a conscious effort to avoid excess. Um, it's maybe one of the reasons why in the later part of the 20th century, uh, traditional and classical architecture was rejected because there was a perception that ornament had gone too far, it was too much, it was too superficial, it was just uh, too gaudy. And there's a bit of that uh, feeling perhaps by many people today. Uh, five is one that I think is uh, quite strong by many members of the church and by church leadership, which is that a temple isn't necessarily about the architecture that the focus should be on the, the ordinances and the, the worship that's taking place inside. And six is what I touched on with current construction practices. It is just much more difficult today for artists and architects to collaborate. The whole system, the whole culture is uh, against it. But despite these challenges, temples today uh, I think still do offer rich opportunities to collaborate between architect, artist, and artisan. And I'll show just a few examples that I've been involved with. Uh, this is one of the art glass windows in the Paris Temple where we started working with an artist in Chicago who's not a member of the church. His name's Matthew McNicholas, but he's one of the, the finest uh, artists doing ornament in architecture today. And each of the windows in the temple represents a different flower of France. So he created conceptual drawings, which we took as the architecture team and uh, worked with an artisan, a stained glass artisan in Lehigh to select the glass, to do hand-painted uh, flowers, and to do all the details and integrate them into these uh, window systems, which are complex. They have to keep out water, and there's a lot of technical uh, challenges that you have to deal with. Uh, but I think they're a beautiful example of integrating art and architecture into a temple today. Uh, the Tijuana, Mexico temple uh, is certainly iconic in that city. Uh, my family and I were driving down to San Diego for a vacation, and we, because we have five kids, we drive at night. Uh, it's just so much easier that way. But when I woke up in the morning at about uh, 5.30 a.m., I looked up and my wife had been driving and, and uh, I saw a sign that said, welcome to Mexico. And I said, what happened? She said, I missed the last exit. <laughs> So we just rolled right into Mexico. I found out it's a lot easier to get into Mexico than it is to come out. They don't really care if you go in. Um, but the Tijuana Mexico Temple uh, is one that uh, really celebrates the, the, the Mexican tradition, this uh, Spanish colonial tradition. And we looked at a lot of the um, Spanish mission churches and the, the exterior and the interiors, the, the windows, the furniture, the, the lighting, decorative paint, uh, the architectural details were all trying to be uh, faithful to this uh, tradition uh, in that place. 
And then finally, another really incredible project was the uh, Provo City Center Temple, which most of you are probably familiar with, uh, was an old pioneer building that uh, burned in a fire and then was converted into a temple. So the original interiors were just a large assembly space. And what we had to do as an architecture team was to try and put ourselves into the mind of William Folsom, the original uh, designers, and come up with rooms. In this case, it was the uh, kind of Victorian Gothic, neo-Gothic uh, style of architecture, uh, and trying to re recreate details and reinterpret uh, what they would have done if they had built a temple at that time in that place. So one point I'd like to make is that, uh, you know, people look at different temples and pick favorites sometimes. Well, I like that one. I don't like that one. Um, and I, got, I get caught up in that as well. And I think what's important to remember is that all of them are offerings to God. Um, I think even the most beautiful building that we could ever create, uh, God would look down and, and smile on it and, and say, you know, good effort, little children. That was, uh, well done. You know, like, like a parent with, with children, you, you praise the, uh, the best that they can do. Compared to God's creations, none of what we do is, is anything. Um, but uh, I, I have felt the inspiration of uh, what I would call the Spirit of God and uh, believe that he does guide the design of, of temples, but he leaves a lot of the decisions up to us. So finally, this, this exhibit harkens back to President Kimball's call to artists to rise up and seek excellence. And so I have a few uh, ideas for the, the next 50 years, if we're ready to accept that challenge. One, that we need more patrons of the arts uh, to step up and to uh, fund the artists who have the skills and are willing to put in the time and sacrifice to do this. Two, that church schools should teach skills, not trends. Three, and I think we're already seeing this in the church, that with too much tight correlation and central control, there, it's difficult. Uh, for people to be very creative, and, and the church is already, I think, uh, as it spreads across the globe, uh, giving more autonomy to different areas of the church. You're seeing uh, more variety, I think, and, and, and that's, uh, that's a careful balance, but I think that's a good thing. Uh, four, uh, commissioned art by the church, that the church itself uh, can commission more art for temples, for other projects. Um, Five, a return to the Atelier Studio, which is basically the Beaux-Arts uh, school model where architecture firms think of themselves as a, a learning studio, teaching the, the principles of the past and uh, principles of architecture. And six, that we don't uh, fall for popular culture. Uh, it is easy to be indoctrinated by modernism and uh, if we're to resist this, the whole culture really is against us. 
So in closing, I'll share two quotes that I think we need to uh, have simultaneously in our heads. Uh, this is one by Yoshio Taniguchi. Architecture is basically a container of something. I hope they will enjoy not so much the teacup, but the tea. And I think that uh, is the one side of a temple, that it is not about the architecture. It's about what goes on inside. But at the same time, Brigham Young said, we want all the Latter-day Saints to understand how to build up Zion. The city of Zion in beauty and magnificence will outstrip anything that is now known upon the earth. Uh, I think we have a long way to go. And I hope that as we make that journey, that we look to the past as much as we do to the future. Thank you. No problem. Thank you, Paul. It's good to uh, it's good to be with you, and thank you, Mike, for the invitation. My name is Arch Williams. I've worked for the church for uh, not quite a year, um, and like Paul, I'm here at the invitation of Micah, not for representing the church. And um, and so, as I as I make comments, I hope you would not dwell on those as church policy, but as my musings as I have uh, been a, a member of the church in my entire life and hope to be for the rest of my life and into the eternities and have uh, a great love of what, what the church tries to do for the arts, how it um, enlivens people and allows people, I think in many ways, to be able to use their inner strength, their inner musings, their inner desires to be able to express themselves in marvelous ways that we have not yet even begun to touch. I love President Kimball. I used to love him a lot more, but um, he was the prophet of my youth. I loved him, I loved his voice. I stood next to him uh, once and he hit me about right here. I've never felt so small in my life. And Elder Williams, how are you? And the big bear hug and just a wonderful experience. But I'll have to tell you why he's not quite as much loved as he was originally in my life. My freshman year, I went to Utah State and took out my endowments in the Logan Temple. My great-great-great-grandfather and grandmother worked on that temple. I was the uh, second to the last session before the temple was, quote, decommissioned. And uh, was very sad one day as I drove by the temple in the snow and saw the baptismal font out on the lawn. Um, it was a baptismal font that I had been baptized a, a thousand times as a youth and come to realize that the font had been sold to a, uh, to a scrap yard for uh, its, uh, its metal. Hallelujah, somebody wise in the church realized when and found it and is now in storage, and so some of the pieces were, were maintained. But you have to understand what the church was trying to do at that time. Exactly as Paul expressed, we were after uh, greater efficiency. We didn't really have the time nor the money to be able to uh, to, uh, to build the temples to the pace that we did in the, in the century before. When I was a kid, every temple was announced maybe 20 years apart from each other, if you remember that, and it was a major, major announcement when the church said, we are now going to build a temple in Oakland, Seattle, um, all of these, and then all of a sudden, in the next last few years, we're jaded now because when they say, uh, 
South Africa or one of these days it's going to be Bangladesh. One of these days it's going to be um, um, Madras in, in India. We're, we're, we're jaded. We don't realize what a wonderful experience that was. So I fell out of love with President Kimball a little bit. And when I get to the other side, if I ever, I never will, but in my dreams, if I'm ever in his company, I'm going to give him a big tug and, and uh, have him apologize for what happened to Logan. <laughs> but one of the upsides of Logan is that we learned a lot of lessons on Logan, and it did not happen to Manti. And uh, so we can be very thankful that that process took, I don't know, Paul, what, twice as long and cost twice as much as they thought it was going to do to create the efficiencies that they wanted. So I understand that. But I'll tell you in my musings about art and architecture that I've had my entire life, as you read the Old Testament and you read the instructions that the Lord gave to Moses for the tabernacle, can any of you identify something that he actually said when they were constructing the tabernacle? Did he tell him how long he wanted it? How wide he wanted it? How tall he wanted it? He even got down to the details of the color of the veil. He wanted sheepskin that were of purest wool, dyed for million. I don't know where they got those dyes in the desert, but here's the Lord, the creator of the universe, the creator of the world, worrying about how he wanted that building to be represented. Part of the building, the inner courtyard, I mean the inner Holy of Holies, was only seen by how many people once a year? One. One, once a year. And yet, can you imagine walking into that space and seeing the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubims facing each other over that bench or the, or the, or the, uh, the laver uh, out, out in front of the, the, the details brother, are, are, are beyond boggling. So as I look at that and then as I look at what happened to Logan, I'm going, there's gotta be there's got to be a marriage of what we're trying to do, not only in the church, but in our, in our hearts and in ourselves, to be able to try to meld the practicality of making a living and actually functioning in the world, but in very small ways to be able to capture, capture the essence of what our Father in Heaven wants us to observe. Um, I grew up on a cattle ranch in Idaho, okay? It's a, it's a long way from my studies in BYU and my continued studies in London. As I, as I, uh, I looked at uh, St. Saint, Saint Paul's in London, one of the, my, my favorite buildings on the planet, and as you stand in the bottom of the, of the uh, or in the, the, uh, under the rotunda, and you look up, and you, you see that magnificent structure, and then you look down. I don't want to put Paul in the spot. What does it say on the floor, Paul? Do you know what it says on the floor? I don't know. No. Uh, Christopher Wren was an amazing man. Basically got the opportunity of rebuilding London after the Great Fire of 1666. How many churches did he build? I think 37, right in the precincts of London. Got to build St. Paul's back. He says on the floor, if you seek my monument, look around you. And as you read that in the floor, and then as you look up, um, it's as spectacular to me as, how many of you have been on Half Dome and looked into Yosemite Valley? How many of you have been um, um, on the top of the Eiffel Tower and looked over a beautiful pier? In fact, I'll give you a quick story of how I feel about stuff. We were talking in Sunday school one day about, about uh, the earth being renewed and receive its paradisical glory, which has always troubled me a little bit. I really like the earth the way it is. And so I guess I'm a telestial, telestial guy. I'm never going to make it to the other part. So we're talking about it. So I, I'm always a provocateur in uh, Sunday school. I raised my hand and I said, 
Well, I'm sorry, but if the world's going to look like the temple films, then I ain't going there. And there was this massive gasp from the little old ladies in the building, and they were all <laughs> sucking air, and they ran to the bishop. And, but I, how many of you walked down Saint-Germain in Paris and looked at, I kind of like the dirt of Paris, um, the old architecture, the wonderful things that you see. And so that's my struggle. We want perfection, and we want the earth to receive its paradisical glory. But also, I believe that the Lord created this earth in its in its crumbly state to be able to instruct us on what we should look for and what should we should not look for to be important in our lives. Um, I think St. Paul's is just as worthy of, of our creative talents as the Lord expressing himself in Half Dome. I think, they're, I think they're the same thing. Us in our little way and him in his magnificent way. Um, I look at art in the church as, as, a, uh, as a problem in that um, originally in, one of the, in some of the great old temples you, you, saw, you saw Cardston, which is a masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece of the melding of art and architecture in that art in Cardston was not nailed to the wall after the temple was completed. Every inch of it was thought out specifically and carried out from the light fixtures to the, to the light switch to the drain on the font to every detail was encapsulated into the, into the integrity of that building. Can we do that now? I don't know, Paul, probably not. When you're constructing eventually 20 temples a year, which we need to do, that is probably impossible. So how do, we, how do we meld that? I don't know, and that's the thing that we're all trying to work on. But I'll tell you, one of the things that President Kimball told us is that we needed to quit dealing in the mud and look up to the stars and understand what our potential is. Those people who are members of the church that have a testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ that understand the principle of the power of the Holy Ghost on enlightening and enlivening their lives, their intellect, their, 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 their very being, as we use the spirit to be a perfecting compound in our lives, we use that spirit as enlivens us to be able to create things that are beyond our comprehension. It will surprise even us. How many of you have taken a test or done an activity where you did okay, but then you understand uh, at one point what the spirit can do to help you appreciate what you're studying? How many of you try to learn a foreign language? How many of you have tried to, to ace that, that incredibly difficult test on your own? And then you realize as a member of the church that as you encapsulate the ideas of the, of the spirit to enliven and enlighten us, we look at that same test or look at that same language and we go, I'm better, I'm better than I was before. I think that's what President Hinckley or President Kimball was trying to say. As he said, um, the greatest play hasn't been written. The most beautiful building hasn't been constructed. The most amazing piece of art hasn't been, hasn't been painted yet. And I think that, well, how do you top Michelangelo? How do you possibly do that? Talk about, talk about a genius. How many have been to Rome? How many of you gazed at the Sistine Chapel? And then you walk out and you realize that the dome was his too? Are you kidding me? 
And yet, when you look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, is it a painting or is it a piece of sculpture? Sculpture. It's sculpture, painted on the ceiling. He was a frustrated, he wasn't a painter, he didn't like it. Julius II said, I want you to do that. I said, no, I want to build your tomb, drop dead. I want you to do the ceiling. He said, okay, I'll do your ceiling, but it's going to be in my way. And so as you look at that ceiling, it's a piece of architecture that's painted on a wall. So who won? Does anybody remember Julius II? <laughs> Does anybody go, oh, I want to see Julius's chapel? You go to see Michelangelo. And what the quote is that we've all talked about, can you imagine Michelangelo? Where's Hannah? Is Hannah here? Hannah, I work with Hannah Miller, who uh, uh, works with me in the church working on art. We talked about it today. Can you imagine the concept of, of Michelangelo as a member of the church? Okay, stop. Better or worse? Anybody? Better or worse? He'd still be a fighter. <laughs> um, with the feeling of, of, of a testimony of who he is and a testimony of who created him and put him on the earth to do a marvelous thing and the in, encapsulating of the spirit enticing him to do even better. I can't imagine. But when I ever get where I'm going, I'm going to go see what he's working on now because I know he's never stopped. Can you imagine what he's working on now? It's probably his own little world. And it's got great mountains that look like columns with Corinthian tops on them, I guess. I don't know what he's working on. But as we look at art in the, in the church right now, we've got some concerns in that the brethren and the reason I was hired and Hannah was hired was to elevate the art in the temples. As I explained before, as you look at art and, and the architecture of the tabernacle or the Nauvoo Temple, how many have been through the newly, restored, newly built Nauvoo Temple? Um, it's quite a structure and quite a testament in that we didn't build a new temple. What did we try to do, Paul? Yeah. Recreate. As much as we possibly could in the old, uh, the old week's drawings and so forth to be able to try to look at them and, and figure out what they wanted to do. And so as we look at that, I think that tells us a little bit about what we're trying to accomplish. On the other hand, I, from LA, I've been there for my, other than going to school my entire life, I love the Los Angeles temple. I love it, I love its simplicity, the cleanliness of its design. And um, one of the funny stories is that I always tell people is, uh, uh, they were remodeling one of the one of the little um, one of the little ceiling rooms, and unfortunately, they duplicated the Salt Lake Temple ceiling room in the middle of the Los Angeles Temple. So we've got some work to do. We've got some work to do to be able to create an environment to be able to worship our Father in Heaven, an environment that will enliven us and inspire us and want us to do better. So as we look at the art, the artists that are painting in the church right now—I mean, this is a mundane statement, but they're phenomenal. And some of them are very young. And as I meet with them and talk with them, they say to me, Arch, I want to paint for the temple. It is my offering. It is my offering to the Lord. 
and as you encapsulate their idea of the spirit and who they are, and then trying to allow paintings to be painted for the temple that encapsulates those concepts, what you're going to see in the next 10 years will blow your mind. Not only do we have wonderful art that is in the temples now, but we're going to get pieces that are even better. One of the things that we're working on is to be able to try to, to work with the artists that incorporate not only the architecture, but the feelings that you have in the temple. We have very specific concerns about art in the temple in that art in the temple is not supposed to be a showstopper. You're not going there as a museum to look at the art in the temples. You go to temple to worship your father in heaven and be instructed. What better way to be instructed than by the art, the architecture? I've always found it fascinating that the Lord in his infinite wisdom uses what to portray the creation of the earth and the instruction in the endowment. What, what artistic form does he use? Theater. He uses theater. Isn't that interesting? And before films were created, the walls were covered with art to be able to instruct us and be able to enlighten us. I promise you that the Lord is concerned about what he does. As I've studied the Kirtland Temple over the years and I've talked with many people who have worked on it, they had no idea what they were doing. Here's a culture that, that was just starting to be developed. They were living, living in log cabins and didn't have two pennies to rub together. And yet, what did the Lord command them to do? To build a house to my name. Did he need it? He didn't need it. They needed it. Because as they sacrificed and built that house to him, they were better people. As we build the temples and sacrifice for the greater cause, he doesn't need it, but we are better people. And we are more enlightened and more lively and more intelligent and more instructive on the things that we should do by building and consecrating ourselves to build temples. I feel like I'm in Sunday school and I'm not intending to do that, but you cannot separate the construction of the temples from the spirit by which they were built. You cannot do that. You can walk up to them. In fact, we have a kind of comment in the churches that exterior of the temples are for missionary work and the interiors are for temple, temple work. I know two people specifically that joined the church because they drove by the San Diego temple at night. Well, does that say they've got a weak testimony? I don't know, but boy, they said, what is that? And I want a part of it. So it's not an interesting thing that we, that we try to accomplish as we meld architecture with the work of the church. So as we work with artists specifically, how do you instruct an artist to paint a painting of the atonement for use in the temples? We're working on that right now. How do we do that? Um, we know that the atonement was one of the most intensely painful experiences that uh, the most intensely ex painful experiences that has ever happened in this world or the, any other world. How do you portray that? I don't know. They're working on it. Is he bloody and broken in the dirt of Gethsemane? That's reality. And yet some of the art we have portraying the atonement is what? You know the famous painting, he's got his arms crossed like this on the rock and he's gazing steadfastly. There's got to be a middle ground. So there's the challenge, that it needs to be provocative to help us think about the suffering that he had without it being um, too graphic. I don't know how they do that, and we're working with them to be able to use the spirit to tell them how to paint that. So as you walk through the temple, one of my favorite stories is that uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they, they had walked through this hall of a temple for 20 years. 
but they were going through something very difficult in their lives. And as they came out of the celestial room, they turned to the right, and there was a painting that they had seen every week for 20 years that had never said anything to them. At that moment, that woman needed that art to speak to her, and it did. And she called me and said, can I get a copy? Unfortunately, we have a new procedure in the new directive in the church that the temple art is specifically for the temples. You won't see it in the Ensign. You won't see it duplicated in any other publications. It's specific to the temples on purpose. We'll reproduce it on other temples, but we're trying to make it more sacred, more exclusive. So that's the challenge that we have. But I want you, uh, I want you to understand that it is a focus of what we're trying to do, to meld the beauty of the architecture, the beauty of the art and the architecture, to represent the beauty of the people that are going in there, or more importantly, coming out. It's an amazing experience to be able to work with these artists that are so in tune with the spirit and want to elevate what they're doing. And I promise you, in the next 20 years, I don't know about theater. I, 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 I love it, but that's not my responsibility. Paul's in charge of the architecture, but as far as I'm concerned, the next few years of my life will be dedicated to be able to elevate the art in the temple and to be able to support the artists to be able to ex express their spiritual connection with the art which in, in, huge, in a huge way is what I'm trying to accomplish to have you then have a connection with that art so that there's this wonderful melding of the art, the architecture, and the spirit and the love that our Heavenly Father has for us that he has commanded us, he has commanded us to build these structures for him. But what's his work and his glory? It's us. So we build them for us to be able to fill his spirit and fill of his love. And it's, uh, it's an exciting time in the church, and uh, I look forward to, uh, um, to the elevation of all of these elements to be at the point where President Kimball, who I sustain and sustained as a prophet, seer, and revelator, that saw the future day when um, amazing, marvelous things will be created by this little tiny people on the face of the earth. When Julius II commissioned the Sistine Chapel, Catholic Church had been around for 1,400 years. How long have you been around? We got a lot of work to do. Thank you. Do you two mind taking some questions? We're happy to take questions. Yeah, I know I've got some, but let's, let's pass that to the audience. By the way, full house. You two are very popular. It's great <laughs> to see everybody here. Thank <laughs> you. Is. Thank you so much for coming. Does, does anyone have a question they want to give to either uh, Arch or Paul? Yeah. Okay. Um, so you mentioned correlation, that uh, you know, somehow we need to engage correlation with architecture and with art, recognize that this is now a global church and so forth. Uh, and disclosure here, I work in the correlation department. I'm wondering <laughs> what procedures you would like to see happen so that art and architecture can develop in the church, with re so procedures with regard to correlation. What can we do that would best facilitate this? Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, every piece of art and every uh, room that gets built in a temple is 
approved really by the first presidency in, in the end. So we do photorealistic renderings of, of every room in the temple and show those to the first presidency and they decide if they want that fabric to be a little more you know, blue or that chair to be a little taller. I mean, they, they, they do get into the details. Um, and so ultimately everything is going to come back to the uh, to the first presidency and the presiding bishopric and church leadership uh, for approval. And uh, I think, I, I guess as far as uh, procedures, I, I think what we need is uh, really a, a uh, support from church leadership to uh, allow artists the, the freedom to uh, explore. And and not so much by the, the the top church leadership because I I think that support is is mostly already there. But sometimes uh, it's the middle management that uh, tries to uh, outguess what the the leadership wants and maybe overreacts to uh, comments that they say. Um, and so I, I think it's going to take uh, some some time. I think it will take uh, some uh, some more artists uh, exploring uh, these subjects, like Arch has talked about these re religious subjects, and and to be trained really. Uh, to do them at a level that is as as good as people have done them in the past. And there's very few places where they can receive that training, but they're growing. Uh, places like the, like the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, the Beaux-Arts Academy down in Provo, and, and other schools, these ateliers where uh, artists and architects are, are trying to, to train young talent. Uh, I, I think as... Uh, as young artists develop those uh, skills uh, and the the ability to uh, do figurative art uh, that's more uh, as of, of higher quality and more believable, and uh, uh, that the, the we'll see a lot of progress and 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 be able to. Uh, have have art that uh, portrays the kinds of things that we would like in, in temples. Not sure if it answers your question exactly, but uh, so those are some of my thoughts. And Arch, do you have Just a quick answer is quit looking down and look up. Um, we look at the plans, we look at the brick, we look at the costs. Those are all extremely important. But look at what we're about. We need to look up. And I think there's been a lot of general conference talks where we've been instructed to quit looking down and look up. Look at the big picture. Look at what uh, what that spirituality can be accentuated by um, by uh, people using the dollars very wisely, but also um, not penny pinching to the point where um, we uh, disengage ourselves from again the instructions that the Lord gave us in the Old Testament. He's very involved in the details, and he knew that that was going to be a sacrifice for the people to create it. And I think we. Uh, we can be a part of that. I've got a question along both those lines. Um, not that I want to keep I want other people to ask questions too, but 
I imagine art specifically, when you are charged with elevating the quality of the art that's in temples, that's simultaneously being able to go to some back catalog, potentially, of art that's already been produced, that the church may have, or that's been produced you know, maybe elsewhere, along with a mix of commissioning new pieces from artists that are alive that have not yet made those works. And I, I kind of, I guess uh, the question I have is, I remember that there used to be, and I don't wanna get too much into the secret sauce, but um, I know that it used to be two new works for each temple. At least that was a mid-2000s kind of rule that could be commissioned, and there was a budget for that. But as you're, um, as you're going forward and you talk about the next 10 years being a big deal, uh, I, I imagine that budget-wise, it'd be easier and less risky to go to the catalog, right? Versus going to something that's new and commissioning that. How do you balance those resources and say, you know, I could go to the catalog and get five pieces that we already know about, <laughs> we know what they look like, and we can do them in any size we want to, versus I'll roll the dice on, on this. Great artist, but still don't know what they're gonna make. How do you make that decision? Well, a lot of it is the directives from the brethren in that uh, we have a, a ratio of so many new pieces of art that can be commissioned for each temple. Um, I applaud the church for even considering that. It would be much easier, much faster, much cheaper to just do a bunch of zuclés and, and put them in a nice frame and plaster them on the walls of the temple. Um, some temples have been, have been done that way. I don't know how many of you remember the 99, 2000, 2001, Paul, how many temples were constructed in that little yeah, period? 50-something, 50, 53? 50, 50, 53. A conference center was constructed. Uh, I'm really glad I didn't work for the church at that time. It was, it was mayhem. And so in those temples, um, there, are, there is very little original art because they just didn't have the time. Some of those temples were built in less than a year. If you can imagine that, land acquisition plans were drawn, uh, permits were pulled, and those temples were built in less than a year. What's amazing is that, and this is what I, I, I really try to layer what I try to do in any situation I work for in the church, those little temples that were built with not a lot of original art, some of them do just as much work for the dead as the big temples on the East Coast or here in Utah. They're, they still function. They still create uh, the work that they're intended to do. But as we walk and work through the temples, we want to make sure that they're a little bit better now that we're looking back on them. So there's a directive that we put so many new pieces of art in the temples that then can be reproduced in the catalog. So as we add 2, 4, 10, 25, 35, over the next few years, 100 new pieces that have been commissioned, um, that will increase the capability we have of pinning wonderful new reproductions in the temple and then continuing to, to add new pieces to the temple. Um, one of the great battles that we always have, and I'm not saying anything that anybody doesn't know, is that there's always a battle of the budget, and there always will be. If you want to read a great book, go read The Agony of the Ecstasy and realize how Julius and, and, and Michelangelo fought over the dollars, fought whatever they were then. <laughs> and uh, we still, we don't quite Florence. fight. Florence. We still don't quite <laughs> fight that way. But my, my opinion is that I would rather us move the budgets around so that we create one wonderful piece instead of 12 mediocre pieces. Mm -hmm. And the artists really agree with me on that. 
They don't want to create uh, mediocre pieces, but when you're given a, a few dollars and a few months to create, you're going to do it. So that's one of the things I'll work on. And uh, the, the team of, of all of us that are working out is to try again, my commission is to increase the quality of the visual arts in the temple. Mm. Yes. Um, temple art uh, tends towards the representational. Would you ever consider art that doesn't fall in that category? That's that's a that's a very very good question. One of the one of the great uh, I I'd heard the story and Micah reinforced that story when uh, when uh, Arnold Freiberg was was working on his Book of Mormon um, paintings. President uh, McKay was very very much against the representation of the of the Savior in those paintings, and so the one who won was was Arnold did the little tiny little Jesus coming down over the top of the uh, the ruins in the Americas. So that was a representation. Um, am, am I still, am I pretty close to that? Yeah, or? He, they, he did the 12 paintings, which was a commission inherited by the church from the primary president. And uh, he had, he experimented with something like 87 different subjects, I think I cataloged. And we, they knew that one that had to be in the 12 paintings was Christ's arrival in the Americas. And he showed, uh, and I, I don't have the drawing here, I've, I've got it elsewhere, of Christ standing amidst the people in the ruins of the Temple of Bountiful with them palpating hands and side, thrusting hands in the side. And David O. McKay and he had a, a huge argument. Um, and I, I heard this from Arnold Freeberg, who was biased towards his side. <laughs> but he said that uh, David O. McKay said that it was disrespectful to represent the Savior directly because it was like repeating his name in vain, and pretty soon he'd be on every watch and every book cover and every T-shirt. And, and he is. And, and he is. And, uh, and Arnold Freeberg said, but uh, when we see him, we'll be like him. We are creating his image, and that's what makes Mormons different, is this conception of God as a resurrected being and a separate being in the Trinity. And, and uh, Arnold Freeberg used to end the story by saying, and then he died and I won. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, the, so the answer to your question is, is, is no, we do a lot of representations of the Savior, obviously, but we're commissioning right now many, many representations of pieces that do not have the Savior in them. Um, Moses and Aaron, um, uh, a lot of biblical stories that we do not have in the catalogs that are not represented in the temple. And then we also have uh, a huge backlog of commissioned pieces of the natural foreign fauna, the areas in which the temples are constructed. For instance, I've been working on the Atlanta temple. There isn't a single painting in the Atlanta temple that represents the southeast. Um, we've got two beautiful paintings of Mount uh, Temp that are beautifully represented in, in Georgia. And again, that was a function of they're building so many temples, and there were a couple of originals, and a, a person donated. Well, let's get them to Atlanta. Is so. part of your question too about abstract and non-representational art? In addition, non-representational, or even like going away from the almost photo real, you know. Um, so it's not just about Jesus or biblical things, but even going away from fauna and flora, just going towards anything beyond that. Give me, give me, oh, give, me give me, give me, give me, give me ten years. <laughs> Would you like to see that? Well, I think so. One of the points that I was trying to make in my presentation is that uh, art in temples is not limited to the paintings that are framed and, and hung on the walls. And I think if you broaden your uh, view of what art is in temples and look at the uh, at 
as, as a whole, you look at art glass, look at the architecture itself, the patterns, uh, there is a lot of uh, abstract uh, art in temples already. I don't, I don't know if we'd ever have a Rothko on the, you know, the walls <laughs> of the temple. And a lot of that art, uh, in some ways, is uh, antithetical to the uh, ideas of you know, the gospel doctrine. You know, so it, it tends to be about rebellion and, and breaking rules and conventions uh, and doesn't, it may not have narrative content. And I think that the, the art is uh, generally trying to tell a story and to uh, help people to understand the gospel. And I think it's possible for abstract art to do that in a positive way, but uh, it's more, more difficult than one that's straightforward and, and trying to be figurative and, and have a narrative uh, content to it. Yeah. So uh, Minerva Taika got the commission in Mantai, um, in the World Room, which isn't bizarre. Um, and I don't think it was well liked by the brethren at the time. But it speaks to us today, and it's, it's very emotional. But how did that ever happen? How come it wasn't painted over? Do you happen to know that story? I don't. It almost no. was with the remodel of the Manti Temple, but because Manti was, um, quote, a backwater, and because it cost so much to be able to do... Uh, uh, to be able to do the renovation that was scheduled, it, w it was not done, and, uh, and thank heaven. Um, I think that if, I, and again, this is just me, I think if Manti had been the painting similar to, to that in the Salt Lake Temple, they would have been painted over. In fact, we saw a lot of pieces painted over or scraped off the walls, for instance, in, in the Mesa. Um, the murals were, um, now we're trying to get them back. We're trying to recreate them. Um, but that, but that's typical. I, I mean, a great masterwork was scraped off the Sistine Chapel to allow Michelangelo to apply his art, and um, and so change. And I'm not blaming anybody. Everybody who worked on those temples thought that they were doing the best thing that they, as directed by the brethren and directed by the Spirit. I regret that. I'm joking with President Kimball, but I regret that. But. Um, um, there are, it's a, a huge fluctuation with people in the church right now, whether Minerva Teichert is even really religious art. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the ex exhibition at the BYU Museum. Uh, there were several pieces of, that were represented that I'd never seen before. And I, and I love her freshness, her style, her unfinished quality, uh, her incredible colors, uh, the, the graphic, edgy nature of, of, of grit. It's not a passive kind of art. I love that. Many people do not, and that's what I love about the church. I will get comments almost every week. Where is this piece? And I love it, and how did it get in the temple? And then I'll also get the call from people who will say, how do you allow something like that to be in the temple? How do you, how do you condone that? And I said, well, three really cool guys like that piece. <laughs> and, a, and a lady last week kind of stopped. She said, who are they? I want to know. <laughs> I said, well, one is Tom. She didn't get it. One is Hal, and she didn't get it. And the other one is 
Dieter. Oh. <laughs> so, again, like Paul said, it's an amazing thing to think that all three of them with their schedules look over every inch of what's going in the temple. I'm going to butt in. I'm taking a piece of personal privilege because I'm a zealot. This is why I started a nonprofit called Design Art Society, which all of you here. He's one of my co founders. Um, so, welcome, everybody. Eric Bigger. Uh, I was watching downstairs on the Facebook live stream, amazing what technology can do for us, and Archie said something that was really interesting to me, which was, um, look at what Michelangelo created, imagine what he's doing now. And then you followed that up and you said, we can't have art in temples that is too engaging. And it made me think, is there a place for that Michelangelo in uh, formal LDS art today? Would we, would we have a place for a Mormon Michelangelo? And this goes to um, the Gospel Vision of the Arts talk, which spawned this whole mess that we've created with this show, which was Spencer W. Kimball specifically saying, the Gospel can create a Mormon Michelangelo, that our values can be demonstrated in a higher way through the Gospel and through art and training and literature and music and whatever else. And we've asked this question a lot, which is, is there a Mormon or Michelangelo? How close are we? How far away are we? Um, and the consensus that I've heard is we're not there yet. And my worry is that are we gonna get there and not have a place to hang that painting or stick that sculpture? Is the Church History Museum that place? Is BYU that place? Well, that's, that's my biggest concern is that I think the Michelangelo is here, but the patrons are not. Mm -hmm. It's the um, Medici. It's not where the Michelangelo. It's who yeah, the Medici. You, you, you can't have the Sistine Chapel without, without Julius II. You cannot separate them. And I think that's one of the beauties of art history and understanding the connection of the building with the artist and the, and the master or, or the, uh, the, the, the person who funded, funded it. Um, I think that Michelangelo is here. I firmly believe that. But there's got to be... Uh, there's got to be the, be, uh, the sources of desire on part of the LDS public to pull that out of, of the artists who are basically struggling to make a living. Uh, there's a wonderful man from the, from the East Coast who right now is funding a major art initiative for, for LDS art. He's commissioning, he's raising the funds. So there are guys like that that have the deep pockets and a love of the art and a love of the gospel and what they're trying to express. So. Yes, they're there, but it, it's not the artist's fault, it's our fault. And I think I would add that every, every temple is, is different. Uh, and so the Carson is a good example. I, would, I think being in the Cardston Temple is incredibly engaging, almost to the same, maybe to the same degree that the Sistine Chapel is. And, and it is actually very geometric and very uh, graphic uh, uh, kind of art. Um, but the integration of uh, materials and detail in the art and architecture in Cardston is incredible. Uh, it's a different style. It's not the Italian Renaissance, uh, but I think it is a masterpiece on the same level as the Sistine Chapel. And on the inside? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're, 
we're limited by some of the things that I was talking about. You know, we're building a lot more temples a lot faster. We have uh, limited budgets. Um, I don't know if the temple is the place for uh, an explosion like the, the Sistine Chapel, or if it would look like the Sistine Chapel with all those figures and that kind of style of art. But I think, um, I think there, there is a place for art that is that. Uh, engaging and in incredible as the Sistine Chapel was. I agree. No question. More questions? Yes. About criteria. It seems like maybe we don't want a single-minded kind of vision. Maybe it's great to keep it really open and see what kind of comes. But it seems like, as an artist, I wondered for a long time. What is it the church is looking for? Is it non-representational, contemplative, abstract color field? Is it figurative? And there's obviously clues. We can see what's in the temple already. We can see what's coming out in the enzyme. So we have some idea, but is that something that we need to think about or strive for? Is, is a unified vision or is that, I don't know. Arch, you wanna to talk to that? With the art committee a little bit? Or? Um, yeah, we have three committees in the church that analyze the art. First one is the Art Evaluation Committee, and they're a collection of artists, uh, curators, uh, art professionals um, that do a wonderful job of analyzing the art that's coming in that's being proposed for the temples. And they look at it strictly from a judgment call of whether this is worthy to go into the temples. Again, that's a huge a huge cross-section of different people. It's, it's artistic merit. I mean, they're looking for skill. They're looking for technique. And is, this a, is, this a, is this a piece worthy, again, to be in the house of the Lord? And that's really how they look at it. And I'll have a lot of different, different ideas. But um, um, again, we're a very young church, and we don't understand that in the past, uh, buildings were created over a 200-year period and or, or a piece of art was created over a multiple year period. We don't live like that today. We live in nanoseconds. A temple's gotta be built in 18 months, two years, gotta be dedicated, we gotta go into the next, we gotta fill it, we gotta furnish, we gotta go to the next. That's the world that we live in. But I think that, like I say, as we look up a little bit, slow down to a certain extent and say, really, what is the quality? I would rather have a bunch of bare walls in the temple than them just filled with and I and I think I think Paul would would agree with me that I would rather detail it less and make it perfect than to just over detail it with a bunch of garbage or have nothing in it. There's a real sweet spot that is appropriate for that location. Same thing with the art, how it speaks to people. It's tough. It's a very tough question. I get that every day of my life. What does the church want? Um, submit it, and I'll tell you. <laughs> I think we don't want people to be afraid of, uh, you know, taking a, a, a risk and really putting your own uh, spirit into it. Uh, that, that's one thing I fear with too much correlation, too much middle management yeah. kind of uh, intervention as the artists just become... Uh, Sort of the, uh, a, I don't know, the, just trying to create something that they think someone else wants to see. Uh, 
And so uh, I think it's okay to uh, try new things, and I hope that we continue to try uh, new subjects and and push the edges a little bit, uh, but in a in a positive way of trying to do better, not trying to uh, undermine or uh, uh, question uh, kind of core principles and values. But uh, let me give you an example. I'm just thinking. We have directives of, of how the art is supposed to look in the temples. It's supposed to be this. It's supposed to be this. We're really not supposed to portray contemporary figures in the temple. They're supposed to be biblical stories, Book of Mormon stories. Um, I, I don't want to sing. I don't mean to single anybody out, but I'll use that as an example um, of something that should not really have been approved for the temples. Is an artist named Elizabeth Young who lives in Orem and has portrayed some incredibly moving pieces of of sisters in, in different attitudes of prayer, of contemplation. Um, it really, according to the guidelines, should never have been approved for the use in the temples. And yet it's there because the spirit of what she did just thunderclapped everybody on the committees. And I get, and I'm not exaggerating, I get five phone calls a week, specifically from African-American sisters wondering where they can get a duplicate of of her painting of uh, a black sister um, in an attitude of prayer. In fact, I was just in Atlanta, I was just in Seattle reviewing the art. That piece was just placed in the temple, and I'm reviewing it to see what needs to be moved or replaced. And I had four big big boys in the temple come up to me and say, "You move that piece, you're gonna you're gonna talk to me." <laughs> and uh, I've never seen quite an outpouring. Again, it did not fit the directives, but she just finished a piece called, I um, um, can't remember the name of it. What is it, Hannah, of, the, of Pharaoh's daughter? Uh, anyway, it's a Pharaoh's daughter, Finding Moses in the Bulrushes. She spent over two years on it. The dragonfly is exactly the species of dragonfly that they would have found on the banks of the Nile 4,000 years ago. Her headdress was exactly what was found in the catacombs of Egypt. It, it, it was a marvel. So I saw it almost finished. She said, Arch, what do you think? Um, I said, well, I would bring it forward. And uh, it was approved very quickly and with the directive that it's to go in every temple in Africa. And so there again, she used the spirit to be able to paint something that was not what the, we asked for and blew us out of the water. So go for it. Go for it. Yes. So in terms of architecture, you talked about the abstract nature of, of the art that is expressed through architecture. And I think that that also lends to symbolism. And I think that as temple patrons, we sometimes go to temples looking for symbols in the architecture. And I would be curious whether you are consciously putting symbolism into these temples or whether sometimes we may see things that aren't there or how we could better find uh, significance in the temple architecture as we attend. Yeah, that's a great question. It's one I get asked a lot. Uh, you know, the pioneer era, they did put a lot of symbols just 
overtly on the temple. It's one of my favorite family evening activities to go with my children and just point out all the things, you know, the stars and the, the moons and the Big Dipper and everything. Uh, we don't have like a, a list of uh, mandatory symbols to to put into the temple today, and most of what people talk about and write about is just speculation. I, re I remember going down to the St. George Temple after we had done some new uh, uh, carpets, and there were some medallions in the carpet, and there happened to be 12 of them in this one, and I overheard the workers, you know, this <laughs> elaborate numerology of, you know, this is a three times four of the, uh, <coughs> the four corners of the earth and the uh, first presidency, and. Uh, <coughs> I, I mean, if it f feels uh, far-fetched, if it feels like a stretch, uh, it probably is. If you see Alpha and Omega in the, you know, the, the landscape of the Provo City Center Temple, it, it's just shapes. It's pretty, <laughs> it wasn't intended uh, to be symbolic. But uh, the purpose of a symbol is to teach truth and to point to Christ ultimately, right? And so uh, any symbol, if it's on the periphery and not pointing us to Christ and to truth, uh, isn't really uh, very helpful or, or meaningful. Um, but there, there are symbols that, that we still use that are very obvious, like the, the oxen in the baptismal font, the angel Moroni, um, uh, what we try to do now, more than putting symbols all over the temple, is to uh, make a temple a part of a, a place and to connect it with things that the people know and love in that place. And so picking uh, motifs and uh, flora and fauna in the ornament of the temple that will uh, represent the culture so that the temple can be a cultural celebration of that place. Um, but definitely, you know, looking at some of the older pioneer temples, uh, they were much more into that uh, idea of, of putting symbols all over the temples. And you can still find some today, um, but they're pretty obvious ones if they're intentional. Can I end with uh, with a question that has a bit of a preamble? The uh, the I had a conversation a couple weeks ago with a woman who had been a professor of music at BYU for decades and recently retired. Her name's Susan Kenny. She's recognized as a world expert in children's music. And you can imagine being a music expert in the church. You're going to be called in your local ward and stake to do every music calling there is. And she was called to help with the stake conference music program. So she planned to do a Bach cantata that was, uh, it was approachable by an amateur choir, which Bach did a lot of his works for. But when she went to the member of the stake presidency who had been in charge of it, he pointed to a paragraph at the end of the, uh, of the notes section in the hymnal that said, these are the 17 hymns suggested for a stake conference. And she said in her comments to me that the Mormon brain for music used to be this big. And now we created a hymn book and it's this big. 
And, and I think that her comment wasn't so much a, it, it was frustration. I'm sure all of us feel frustration on some level about these kinds of things in every level of the church. Because it's great to have a book that's standardized, but at the same time, it creates a kind of in and out model. And something that I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about the way that you two are describing your jobs in this post frenetic temple building period, is that there were a lot of temples built very quickly, and they're all being used, and it's all—it's a great thing, but there's also the second effort that's gone on to make sure that the temples going forward are done with a little less um, pressure of speed and time, and that that also reaches back into the past temples that have been created in that, in that hurry. But once you've created those temples, people have an expectation of what art should look like in temple and what architecture should look like. And my question is that if, if your constraints are not just budget or bureaucracy, middle management, but they're actually the expectations of the people and what should be or should not be art in the temple, do you find yourselves um, constrained by the, pa the, the, the patrons of the temple? And how do you overcome the expectations or re-expand the brain? I guess is what I'm saying. How do you re-expand that brain once it's been pulled into that perspective? Yeah, I think that's a great example of, uh, I guess, like an over-correlation, right? Your, your yeah. music example. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's over-correlation in a way. But it was, it was well-intentioned. We needed hymn books. Yeah. Yeah, and it it completely shuts down uh, creativity, and uh, the pursuit of excellence, and the uh, the Michelangelos who are going to reach for something better if they're just told no, you have to settle for what we have. That's it, and we put a cap on it. Um, so I, we can't do that. And I think I I guess the only answer is you just. You just do it. You just keep putting um, new things out there and challenge people. And Wait for Arch to get the call. <laughs> and then let Arch deal with the phone calls. <laughs> I think you, you'll get phone calls on both sides, though, right? I people will. who I really love I it do. and appreciate being challenged. And others who say, like, you know, I thought I knew this church, but no, I guess well, I didn't. Your calls seem like the perfect example of that. It's like at BYU, you talk to curators there, and anytime they put something that has a wing in it on an angel, or that shows too much shoulder, you know, they, there's, they, get a, they get a call. And so it's a battle they've chosen, knowing that they'd have to fight. Well, I think that Hannah and I talked on nauseam about a piece that we would really like to see go into the temples where the angel has wings. And the temple is, is full of symbols. It's full of those representations where artists are trying to create something to represent something. I don't think any artist in the last 2,000 years, well, maybe a few, actually thought angels got around on wings. It was a technique of expressing how that person moved between different planes. Uh, the use of a halo, how else do you show holiness then by, he, the Savior didn't walk around with this light bulb going off on his head. It was a symbol. It was a symbol. So we battle, we battle. But you've got to understand, too, and Hannah and I were talking about it, what was it, Hannah, yesterday or day before, um, we have to understand that a lot of people in the gospel are very young. In Africa, if we put a temple, a painting in a temple where an angel has wings, 
everything is so new to them that they're going to think, oh my gosh, that's doctrine. So the brethren are very wise. They're very wise. They love us. And I'll, I'll tell you a layer that I always put on everything I try to accomplish in the temple. There is a sister in my ward in Southern California who is the meekest, most humble, wonderful woman I have ever met in my life. She doesn't know anything about the Adam-God theory. She doesn't know anything about all of the symbols on the temple, but she lives the gospel in the most amazing way I've ever seen in my life. Service, love, compassion, non-judgmentalism, every attribute that the Savior encompasses is encompassed in that woman. So when I think of things for the temple, not only do I think of what Michelangelo can create, but I also think of what that wonderful sister would love to see in the temple. She doesn't care about how beautiful the carpets are. She doesn't care about the symbolism. She goes there to worship and be able to increase her spirituality and to serve those beyond the grave. She probably submits 1,000 to 2,000 of her own names to the temple every year. It's, it's quite miraculous. So there's the balance. I'm being able to try to understand what that sister needs, which is just as important as my desires in the temple. So it's a challenge. Well, can I just say on behalf of everyone who's here that I'd like to have more conversations like this with you too. It's really a privilege to get an insight. I don't feel like we have many of these opportunities, and this is everything that I hoped it would be. You two are just just wonderful and as thoughtful as I'd hoped you'd be. Thank you, Thank you so much for having me, for, for being here. Thank you. Thank you.